Hello and welcome to the Brain Care Podcast, a practical and impactful series of snappy episodes on how to optimize your mental health and performance so you can reach your full potential. My name is Dan Murray-Serta, and I'm the co-founder at Heights. We make smart supplements and clever content with the world's leading experts to help you take care of your brain so it can take care of you. Today's guest on the podcast is James Temperton. You might have heard about James as the digital editor of Wired magazine. Now, his magazine reports on the effects of science and technology, which is why last month he published his first book, The Future of Medicine, How We Will Enjoy Longer and Healthier Lives. Who doesn't want that? So, James, it's great to have you on the show. So let's start with a very quick introduction in your own words and any info on your new book, please. Yeah, so it's part of a series of books that Wired's doing covering really, really big issues. So nothing bigger right now than healthcare. We're also covering issues like quantum computing, cryptocurrency, artificial intelligence, the climate crisis, the future of food. So this is taking the journalism that Wired's done in print and online for decades and giving it a new format, these sort of one-stop expert guides to the near future of a variety of really big areas. Awesome. Thanks, mate. Right. So in this episode, we're going to actually focus on the overall lessons around, uh, well, around longevity from your book. And uh, then in the second, we'll focus a little bit more on the brain. So let's get started. Now, I recently uh, interviewed the godfather of aging, as he's called, Aubrey de Grey on the podcast. And I suppose in many ways, his belief is quite similar to yours in the book, which is that living past 100 years is going to be the rule rather than the exception and most likely in our lifetime. Is that right? Quite different, actually. So Aubrey's perspective might be that we'll be able to live for many hundreds of years. Uh, the perspective of the experts that I spoke to is that... Well, true. A thousand in his crazy mind. Yeah. Yeah, there is that view, um, which isn't necessarily backed up by a whole lot of science. What's more realistic, and I'd argue preferable, is that we'll live longer and healthier lives. So with regards to the future of ageing and longevity... A lot of people get to the age of 60, 70, 80 and start getting quite ill. And the latter years of their lives, the quality of their life goes down dramatically. What's possible in the near future using existing medicines and technologies is that we might be able to increase what's known as our health span so that we might be able to live to the age of 80, 90, 100, 110 even. And for those years to be happy and healthy so that we're able to celebrate our 100th birthday by going on a round the world adventure rather than by being stuck, as many people might consider it, in a care home with a greatly diminished quality of life. Can you tell us about, well, really how you believe that immune therapies in the future might one day cure life-threatening diseases, including even cancer? So at the moment, we treat medicine quite generally. It's The clue's kind of in the name. Your GP is your general practitioner. So the level of care that we get right now in the developed world is absolutely outstanding. But to take a step further, we need to move from treating disease to maintaining health. And that means being preventative. And it also means being more targeted. So when it comes to a disease like cancer, we currently have a whole range of very, very successful, remarkably successful treatments for cancer. The survival rates for cancer are obviously higher than they've ever been and are going up all the time, but it's still one of the world's biggest killers. And the way that we treat it is often quite brutal. What's possible in the near future and is already being carried out by certain 
healthcare providers is a more targeted treatment for cancer. It's a drug that uses your own immune system to effectively remove the cloak that cancer uses to hide within your body and then destroys it using the power of your own immune system. So this is very, very different to a lot of the treatments that we have already. And it's been proven to be really, really successful against cancers of the blood and bone marrow. Treating solid state tumours is a lot harder, but it's something that this work is now going after. The, the treatment involved here is called CAR T cell therapy, and it's effectively using your own body as an incredibly powerful weapon to track down and eradicate cancer. It takes a deactivated HIV virus, and into that are the instructions to hunt down cancer cells and destroy them. So the reason that they use a deactivated HIV virus is that HIV is very, very good at targeting cells. It's the reason that people who have HIV are immunosuppressed. So it's able to go after those cancer cells, get into them, break into them, if you like, and destroy them from the inside. So it's it's a remarkably violent way of, of treating cancer. People that have had CAR T cell therapy ordinarily spike a very, very high fever, an incredibly high fever, higher than they should almost be able to survive through. But once they're through that storm, which lasts several hours, you can have a patient who had absolutely zero chance of survival and were maybe looking at weeks or months to live. They go from being absolutely riddled with cancer to being cancer-free. And there are now many, many patients all around the world who have had this treatment and are out the other side of it and have lived for many years and cancer is now no longer part of their life. Do you think from what you've been reading that uh, medical technology can become so sophisticated that we actually witness the end of aging? So not just slowing the aging process, but reversing it entirely, almost like, you know, treat it, well, as Aubrey said, you know, treating the body like a machine and in a machine you can change the parts and you can change the parts for young uh, for younger versions or newer versions of them. Do you sort of see it like that from what you've been reading or is it not quite so extreme? Yeah, I set almost everything in the book quite firmly against Aubrey de Grey's belief set. But where there's maybe some agreement is that human beings aren't currently living as long as they have potential to, because many of us will get diseases that dramatically reduce not just our health span, but our lifespan as well. So getting out ahead of those diseases and getting on top of them before they become a problem, preventative medicine, targeted medicine is a huge part of the near future of healthcare. But there's a mistake that we need to kind of move into some sci-fi future to get there and that we're going to need all sorts of whiz-bang technology and scientific breakthroughs in order to unlock some of this potential. It's easy to forget that even within very developed economies like the United Kingdom, that access to good quality healthcare is not equal. There are people in certain ethnic backgrounds who do not have access to the same quality healthcare as people from other backgrounds. And around the world, life expectancy is anywhere from 40, 50 years to 80 and nearly 90 years. What's possible with the kind of medical technologies that we have right now is for everyone to have much better access to the healthcare systems that many of us benefit from already. That's a policy issue. Moving beyond that, how can we extend the lifespan and health span of people in developed economies um, who already have access to world-class medical care? Well, it turns out that there are a number of biomarkers of longevity. So there's been some great work done over the last 20 years or so by a doctor based in New York called Nia Bizzali. And what Dr. Bizzali has done is he's identified 
the signals of a long, happy life that exist within people who live beyond the age of 100 and whose lives aren't blighted by disease. They live very, very long, healthy, happy lives, and then they drop dead aged 105. And what he found was that a number of these kind of super ages, if you like, didn't live the kinds of lives that you might expect them to live. So he gives the example of the Khan siblings. So the Khan siblings are the oldest quartet of siblings to have ever lived. They all lived well beyond the age of 100, but they had peculiarities like keeping irregular hours, really bad diets of meat and chocolate and lots of alcohol. One of them, um, a lady called Helen, who I think lived to about 105, smoked every day, all day, for 90 years of her life. And the reason that she never stopped is because all the doctors who told her to stop died before she did. But what Dr. Bizarrely found was that all of these very, very old people and many hundreds more that he studied over a couple shared a variety of different biomarkers of longevity. Their bodies were effectively genetically, they were given a genetic advantage to live for much longer than the average human being. And what Dr. Bazali now hopes is having identified these biomarkers of longevity, that we might be able to find drugs that already exist that give us some of the same benefits. And in fact, one of them we know about is called metformin. It's a treatment that's given for diabetes. It's one of the most widely prescribed pills in the United States. It's incredibly cheap. It's white label. It's derived from French lilac, which has been used for hundreds and hundreds of years to treat diabetes or what back then was considered to be frequent urination. So to re-emphasize the point, we don't need to make huge leaps in terms of medical science to unlock potentially quite profound benefits for how long people are able to live and how healthily they're able to live those years. We're on the brink of being able to treat aging as a disease. And once we start doing that, then there's a lot of potential to ensure that people don't get to 80 years of age and have a very diminished quality of life, that they get to age 100 and are able to celebrate that big birthday in style. Tell us a little bit more about designer babies and the start of our lives. It's a very, very complicated area, right? And it's something that medical science is just beginning to grapple with. We've seen people who have stepped outside of the bounds of law and regulation and done things that nobody wants to be doing with regards to designer babies and this idea that we're playing God, even if even if you're not religious, which I'm not, the notion that we should have control over certain things is a very, very complicated ethical debate. But what's certainly possible is, let's take the example of rare, fatal genetic diseases. So even now, when you find out you're, you're having a child, your partner will be screened or yourself, if, if you're pregnant, you'll be screened for a number of different conditions um, and you'll be given probability scores for um, your child to be from developing all sorts of very rare conditions um, and decisions can already be made based on those probability scores. Now what's not possible right now is to get on top of those genetic mutations that might severely diminish or, um, or prematurely end the, the child's life. You know, there are millions of children who are born with fatal or near fatal genetic diseases. 
it's not to say that we should try and quote unquote cure all of those conditions. But what, what might be possible and might be something that people are able to have a discussion about in the near future is using precision targeted medicines, using genetic therapies to either after birth, get on top of that defect and make sure that it doesn't have a life altering or life limiting effect, or potentially at the point of conception to get a very, very detailed understanding of who that child will grow up to be in terms of um, their genetic profile and making sure that any genetic modifications that are very, very likely to lead to severe disease are altered and fixed. Again, it's very, very ethically complicated, but we're beginning to develop the technologies that will allow us to do this. And it's very, very important that any work that's done in this area is done transparently, legally, of course, and that as a society, we have a really nuanced and thoughtful discussion about what will become possible and what we think should be allowed. Great answer. Very comprehensive, unsurprisingly, for someone that delved so deep into the research of a, a book like this. So before you go, what was your favourite story or anecdote or insight that you unpacked in your, in your research writing this book? One of the most striking statements that was, was made to me in my reporting is describing the people who receive these treatments that are at the frontiers of medicine, they were described as pioneers, almost like some of the the first people to go into space. Effectively, you know, we're, we're strapping them to, to rockets that have been developed by some of the, the smartest people in the world and then hoping we can get them up there and get them back safely. It's quite inspiring to think that it's not just the scientists and the researchers and the doctors who are getting there it's these it's these patients it's these pioneers that are ensuring that one day we'll all have access to a future that they've helped to realize beautifully said james thank you so much looking forward to having you back on the next episode mate thanks very much thank you so much for listening to this episode of the brain care podcast don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And follow us at Your Heights on Instagram and Twitter for daily doses of brain care. Did you know Heights started as a newsletter that I've written every week for years? I'm still doing it, and I'd love it to reach your inbox too. So, for weekly science-backed emails on the best ways to take care of your most important organ all in under three minutes, sign up at yourheights.com forward slash Sundays. See you next week.